This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Christmas is coming, and this week, Z104 in Youngstown, Ohio, switched from an oldies format to all Christmas for the rest of the year. Making the switch before Halloween is unusual, but not unprecedented. In 2019, I did a story on the all-Christmas format for NOLA.com here in New Orleans and was surprised that the decision about when stations flip to all-Christmas is more of a feel thing and that many stations don't have a set date that they switch on every year. The other thing that came out in the story that's useful to remember is that the format switch concept only dates back to 1990. And before that, Christmas songs would be worked into the station's usual programming adding a song or two an hour during the week or so before Christmas, building up until Christmas Day. I'll put a link to that story in the show notes, but since part of what interests me about Christmas music is that it's this beloved music without a strong vocal constituency, aside from people like me and a handful of others making Christmas content all year round, so stories about when stations change and to some degree the business of Christmas music always get my attention. Before we get into today's episode, I need to make a correction. At the end of last week's show, I announced that we would hear Santa Rap by The Treacherous Three. In fact, the song is titled Christmas Rap. But for some reason, I have thought the title was Santa Rap for so long, I didn't check the title before announcing it. Sorry about the confusion, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the song and a video of its appearance in the 1984 movie, Beat Street. This week's episode is half of a story, and not quite the one I planned. I have long loved the Quad City DJ's What You Want for Christmas, from their 1996 album, All Star Christmas, and was excited to connect with C.C. Lemonhead, as he is known professionally. We talked about he and partner Jay Ski moved from Jacksonville, Florida DJ's the producers behind 95 South's Woot There It Is, 69 Boys' Tootsie Roll, and as Quad City DJs, Come On and Ride It, The Train. The interview is a look inside the way artists move from small scenes to national recognition and what happens along the way. One thing that happened is that CC and Jay had a falling out. And while CC was a part of the recording of What You Want for Christmas, he was out of the picture by the time the album was recorded. Because of that, I've got part of the story, but I don't have a chance to talk about, for instance, Big Time's Christmas Blues, which I talked about with Big Frida when she was on the pod. Fortunately, the story is in the world. Last week's guest, Bill Adler, tracked down some of the people involved in the song, and I'll put a link to his story in the show notes. I'm going to keep pursuing Jay Ski and other people involved in the album, and when or if I get others to talk about it, I'll do an episode remix to put the pieces together. Today, though, we'll start the conversation with CC. But first, Alexander Scott is back to join me to talk about some new releases. I talked last time about Alexander being a singer, but I should let you hear her. This is The Smell of Cut Grass from her album, Love You So Much Always. I'll put a link to our Bandcamp page in the show notes so you can follow up on that. Then we'll talk about new music from Megan Trainer, Ingrid Michelson, and Amanda Shires. After that, we'll go to my conversation with Cece from Quad City DJs. 
So today we want to do three new releases. Um, first one, Megan Trainer. Megan Trainer last year released a Christmas album titled "A Very Trainer Christmas," and it is the it has become the Christmas thing to do to basically record two or three extra songs either then or in the intervening year and put out the larger expanded issue uh, version a year later. And so Megan Trainer has released the very or uh, or is releasing a very Trainer Christmas the deluxe reissue with her version of Brenda Lee's "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree." We'll hear it now, and then we'll come back. And Alexandra, you can tell us what you think. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. It's not outstanding, but it's okay. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that's accurate. It is. I I prefer this to anything I heard from last year's. Um, more because I think her presenting herself in the kind of the Brenda Lee, vaguely sort of glammed up rockabilly form, I think suits her voice nicely. Um, it does a thing that I don't particularly value, which is to seriously recreate and go for the mode of the, the, the beloved, uh, version of the song, because mm. to my mind, if I want a sort of a rockabilly version, then I want Brenda Lee. It's one of the things I find interesting about. Christmas music, and I think we've talked a little about this, is I often hear it as an extension of celebrity. And in this case, this feels very much sort of on brand for Megan Trainer, who has presented herself as a sort of family-friendly pop star. Um, you know, a few years ago, probably about five years ago, maybe a little more, but around that she played Jazz Fest. And I went by to see, because it was part of a general move that Jazz Fest has had in the last bunch of years to present uh, pop stars. Ones who seem relevant to Jazz Fest, perhaps as a way of trying to identify the next generation of Jazz Fest goers. And they had Megan Trainer, and I went to see how it was. And what I saw was a lot of moms and a lot of their seven or eight year old daughters. And I, you know, and I, 
I completely get it. My 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 eight year old daughter really likes all about the bass, and and I am happy to have my daughter hear a song uh, that is body body positive, and that says that it is you know you're not you know you should not aspire to be a size zero. Go team, go. As in the okay, listening so- experience, though, no, it it feels very familiar. So you just nailed, there are two things that are, one of which is musical that bother me a little bit about Megan Trainer. And the first is that I, she stands out to me as the first artist who, after Amy Winehouse died, there was, there has been since um, a deluge of, cleaned up artists trying to sing like Amy Winehouse. And she was really the first. Um, Amy died in 2011. Megan released all about that bass in 2014. And she absolutely is trying to sing like Amy. Like, I don't know what Megan's natural voice is, but it's not the voice she sings with. Um, And it's a great package and it is family friendly. Um, I just don't respond very well to packaged artists. I, that sounds snide, but it's true. Yeah. I don't think what she was doing draws specifically from Amy Winehouse uh, because there are other British singers who, and British female singers who are doing similar things. I was thinking right away about uh, Duffy, who had the hit uh, Mercy in, I think, 2008. And, and it is, again, a cleaner uh, R&B pop presentation. Uh, I mean, Adele came out, it was around that same era, though Adele's clearly a much, you know, a much more prodigious singer. Duffy was drawing from, like, Dusty Springfield, um, but... I don't know. As a vocalist and a voice teacher, I there's so many singers, um, and you're going to ask me to name them, and I can't now on the spot. Okay. I, but um, I don't know. I absolutely think there was a there were conferences at record labels of what if we could find somebody like who sings like Amy, but isn't a drug addict and appeals to we could put at festivals where moms could bring their kids and, you know, she's not going to die on us and we're not going to have her walking barefoot through London at night. Oh, I 100% agree with you. That conversation goes on in record companies every day. You know, that the entire alternative rock uh, boom of like the mid nineties was entirely caused by record companies trying to fi- trying to find the next Nirvana, right, and signing any everything under the sun, and it was very clear they didn't understand Nirvana, and they heard a whole range of music, some of which is remarkable and some of which is meh, uh, but it all got signed under the F, under the umbrella of trying to find that next Nirvana, and so right. I one hundred percent agree that you do have there were people who were saying. That Amy Winehouse really works, you know, that's great. 
Now, can we find a more family-friendly Amy Winehouse? Can we find a more this Amy Winehouse? But here's the other thing I'm, about Megan Trainer. I was avoiding reading real news on the internet a week or so ago and discovered this clip. Apparently she was on Jimmy Fallon and revealed that she and her husband have side-by-side -side toilets so that they can poop together. Um, so anybody who's that wow. deep a freak should be making, like, what is the music that her heart wants to make? Because <laughs> she, she herself is not a live, laugh, love sign. Like, there's nobody in this world I love enough that I want to poop next to them. <laughs> so there's way more to Megan Trainer than than I'm getting, and I want to hear that music. <laughs> I want. She needs her Mark Ronson. She needs someone to help her she find does. herself and to find the confidence to write those side by side poop songs, or right. whatever songs or whatever song she wants to write that is in that in that that line that that line that is not as obviously thirteen year old eight year old friendly. Yeah, or maybe sing your like, truth. Take see if PJ Harvey would take her to Ireland for a month and like be in a cottage with no Wi-Fi and get Tilda Swinton to pop in and like come back with that music. I really want to hear that because this woman has levels that we're not getting to see. <laughs> she does have a voice, like, and I just want to hear what I want to hear what there is. There's more to Megan Trainor than nobody <laughs> I want it. All right. Next up, another deluxe reissue. Singer Ingrid Michaelson. She released in 2018 songs for the season. She has a deluxe reissue coming out, and she has her Andrew's sister's influenced version of Winter Wonderland. And we'll check that right now. Slave bells ring Are you listening? In the rain Snow is glistening A beautiful sight We're happy tonight Walking in the winter wonderland Gone away Is the bluebird Here to stay Is a new bird Just sing a love song As we stroll along Walking in a winter wonderland So I'm going to start by saying I, I, there came a point in that where I heard the pedal steel in the background and I could not stop listening to it and thinking how much I loved having this sort of pedal steel giving us the swoops and sort of whooshes in the background and it, and it felt like the one move, musical move that was not made when it was recorded in the 60s or 50s or any of the earlier incarnations. So that took over for me hmm. and I think it's completely lovely um though I also again it's a version it's so much an effort to make so consciously an effort to remake a classic thing that I it doesn't feel sorry it doesn't feel necessary I don't know that I will ever that, how often I will actually choose it but I really enjoy it while I'm listening to it what do you think I loved it, but when there's really beautiful singing done really well, 
I'm I'm usually going to be a sucker for the song. Um, I think I think I, what both the uh, Trainer song and the Michelson song have in common is good musicianship um, throughout the songs, um, and I love that. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have anything bad to say about it. I just thought it was a beautiful, lovely arrangement. She's singing so well. The harmonies are just exquisite. I sang along a lot. Um, it made me happy. It made me kind of feel, I don't know, the way I did as a child during Christmas when my mom made it magical. And that doesn't happen a lot, um, that, that feeling. So yeah, I, I, I just loved it. But you're right. This is so beautifully performed that short circuits everything else. That her voice is so lovely in this and so, and so correct for this. And she moves into, not into the spirit of the song uh, and and kind of the spirit of not just the lyric, but the spirit of the performer performing it originally. And so there's a, it feels like there's kind of an inhabiting, not inhabiting sort of the spirit of the song the first time around. Now, I am curious for myself, and I don't have an answer as to why the Ingrid Michaelson version why it works so well when she and her band and producer re revisit a traditional song and why it works a little bit less well when Megan Trainer and, and same um, revisit a traditional song. Like what is, what is the ineffable thing that makes one sweet and alive and present and makes the other seem a little bit like a pastiche? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question, and I was, and I, and that's kind of why I put these two together because I had some of the same questions. They're doing similar things, but I respond a lot more to the Ingrid Michaelson. Um, I always think part of the, for me, part of it is the degree to which I feel like I can see the mechanisms backstage. That yeah. you can, in the case of a Megan Trainer, it feels very much like here is a very self-conscious positioning of a record and, uh, and an image with a very clear purpose. Probably sort of sell records, stay relevant. Um, and, and obviously, these are the same questions Ingrid Michaelson's thinking but I also think because she is a different artist and a different kind of artist and somebody who has made more of a career out of a more classic pop song that this feels like a, like kind of the, na a, a more natural extension. Maybe. Yeah. Um, it may just be that by virtue of moving into it, so it's such a lovely way we're buying in just, you know, because it's such a nice version uh, in a way that, in a way that, you know, Megan, you know, Megan Trainer's version, 
I can hear her effort to sort of pick up a Brenda Lee-ness that I don't hear in All About the Bass, and I haven't heard in other songs of hers. And she's not doing an impression by any means, but I can hear her sort of picking up a rockabilly phrasing that yeah, doesn't really, that feels like an attempt to be whoever or whatever the song needs her to be. Um, well, that's what I mean about not singing with her, her natural voice. Um, I mean, at this point, she, she probably believes it's her natural voice, but it isn't, whereas Ingrid Michaelson is completely herself as she sings and is in service to the song, and it makes a difference. You don't hear Ingrid Michaelson, you hear the song. Let's go now, one more. And this is, this is kind of the thing that I'm always looking for for Christmas, uh, when I look at Christmas music. This is uh, Amanda Shires, uh, Americana violin player. Um, that She has a new album coming out called For Christmas, and she recently released the first song from it called Gone for Christmas. And we will start with that, and then we'll talk. What do you think? Well, I want to love every single thing about Amanda Shires because she's amazing. Um, I'm a little bit confused by this song. Like, it's the groove is great, the musicianship is great. All right, here's where the podcast audience gets a, a look into how I overthink songs. Um, welcome to the mind of a songwriter. I I think this might be the first like sort of bitter Christmas song I've ever come across. And I don't know if I needed it. Like I, if you, if you're a person who doesn't really listen to lyrics, I think this is a great song for you, but I always listen to lyrics. So it's a little weird for me and I can expound on that or I can go over to you, Alex. All right. I like this a lot. I don't love this. But I like this because I like the idea of people finding ways to have other expressions at Christmas time and to have other thoughts at Christmas time and to to have the get out of my house, get out of my life in time for Christmas. Actually, yep, I like that. And and again, and kind of as I said earlier, as the guy who's always looking for what's the thing that I don't already have in my collection? I don't already have somebody saying, get out of my house for Christmas, get out of my life for Christmas. And so that speaks to me. I also like you. I really like Amanda Shires. I think I like her music. I like when I've seen her live, uh, that I'm, I'm interested in there for to see what comes next. 
And so uh, that all speaks to me. And I have to say, this is another one of those one of those unusual cases where, you know, these days the record release schedule in general means that we start getting songs two or three albums before an album comes out. And where the release of an album was once the start of its promotional cycle, now the release of the album is like the end of the promotional cycle. I hear this and I'm like, oh, that makes me want to hear more. And so I'm always kind of excited when the promotional machinery works in a positive way rather than exhaust me uh, or, or tell me, nah, I'm good. I don't need to hear what comes next. So, so even though I agree it, there's a point at the question I always run into with ones like this, and I've started to kind of get past it, but there was a time where I thought it doesn't have anything very Christmassy about it. Um, it doesn't. But aside from the word Christmas and sort of, and some of the trappings of Christmas in the, uh, in the lyric, but as time has passed, I started to sort of move on that a little bit, uh, partly because I realized that unless we're talking about sleigh bells or the sort of quotes of famous melodies, I'm not sure what actually sounds like Christmas anyway. And that may be a shorthand for like, it doesn't borrow from the Shirelles or it doesn't borrow from uh, the coasters or it doesn't borrow from uh, Bing Crosby or from uh, uh, Peggy Lee. And so it's like, if it does, you know, so it's a thing that I used to get hung up on. And for a long time, it took me a long time to kind of connect to blues uh, Christmas songs. Because if you wipe the lyric, it's here's 12 bar, you know, here's a 12 bar blues. And I, well, is that really a Christmas song? But then I started listening to like Latin Christmas music and realizing there's nothing in this that sounds like sleigh bells and why would it and this is their expression of christmas why do ours have to all filter through about 10 reference points it's yeah like, all right. mean, but new orleanians we have palm trees during christmas i remember once mentioning to one of my virginia cousins that I loved, you know, going outside on Christmas in short sleeves and looking at the palm trees. And she went, oh, I can't imagine seeing palm trees on Christmas. And I was like, you didn't realize there's a like, cold Southern hemisphere. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it, like, I would love to dance to this. It's definitely like something I would enjoy on a playlist or at a party. I just got into a sort of, I got puzzled by the lyrics because she wants a pony, which I think lyrically is, or in a conversation is always sort of a signal for, I want a thing I'm not gonna get. She wants a 52 week paid vacation. Also like impossible wish. She wants to be taller than five foot three. Again, not gonna happen, but then she's very adamant that I want you gone for Christmas, which is such a powerful statement. So it's kind of like, well, here's a list of things you, you want but are not going to get, but here's this thing you're very determined about. I, like, again, this, this, is, this is how I, how I think about songs. 
I just wish somebody had clarified the lyrics a little bit more so that it could have been a bit more of like, I want these things I am going to get. And I also want this thing that I am going to get, which is you gone for Christmas. Right. Yeah. Also, I, I mentioned that the video is great. It's really weird and 90s -y and she's it's just her and I, i've watched it like many times um because she's so powerful and she's a force of nature i also wish her violin solo had been like mixed a little higher um but that's yeah. just me yeah but i really like it and again like it's a song with great musicianship and it's it's a unusual take that i also have not heard um and props to her for that Twelve songs is sponsored by Car Floats. Reusable, removable fabric stickers for your car. Here in New Orleans, everybody has a costume box, if not closet. And Car Floats believes your car ought to be able to dress up or down according to the mood or season two. They have designs suitable for the upcoming holidays, but also ones that simply reflect your personal sense of style and whimsy. Tired of your CX-5 looking like everybody else's CX-5? Car Floats can help. And when you're ready for something different, you can peel them back off, put them back on their paper backing, and save them until the next time you're ready to dress up your car. My daughter helped me put ghosts on my car for Halloween, and now that it's over, those stickers are back on their paper, rolled up, and stored until this time next year. Want to see what you can do for your car? Visit car-floats.com. Put 12 songs in the promo box, and that's the number 12 songs as one word, in the promo box at checkout for 25% off on your first purchase. Car Floats, art in motion. Before Quad City DJs, you had hits as 95 South with Woot There It Is in 93 and producing 69 Boys and uh, Tootsie Roll, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So tell me, so, so what was going on in Florida hip-hop at this point, and what was going on with you to have this kind of run of hits? Um. Well, I mean, that's a broad question. We were... You know, we started out, um, me and my partner, Crime J, and then also uh, Mike Mike was one of our writers, and um, Van from 69 was one of our writers. I mean, we were, we were just friends. You know, we, we hung out and we did everything together, but we, um, we, had, we started out with a group called Chill Deal, um, and we had some mediocre success with that. Um, you know, uh, we we uh, had a song called "Make Your Body Move" that did pretty good. You know, um, around the country, so that kind of got us on the road and meeting new DJs and um, you know picking up you know uh, contacts and everything everywhere. But at some point, I got um, 
I met with Magic Mike and I saw how the you know the bass scene was just sort of uh, just just making buku money. So we decided to transition. Long story short, to um, to do bass music. So 95 South was our first venture into that. And I mean, it was already what we were doing with Childa, but we sped it up, you know, and, um, you know, added more bass to it. Um, so uh, as far as uh, the Christmas song. Um, let's come back to the Christmas song. Yeah, let's come back to that part. I, I want to get there. But, um, okay. 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 Because okay. also there's a lot in what you just said that all interested me. So one of the things I want to ca- make sure I was clear on. So, you know, because... You you had hits and re- and recordings under a number of names and and as you just mentioned there that you know such and such this one was also in ninety five South and this was this do I get the impression that this is basically you and a collection of friends getting together exactly. and making songs exactly so yeah it was primarily me and Jay I was uh, the studio guy I was the one you know I, the beats was my thing. Um, and Jay was a concept man, a lyric, you know, lyricist, hype man, whatever. Um, you know, we used to, you know, we came up together, you know, listening to the old Planet Rocks and the old, uh, Shannon's Let the Music Plays and, um, uh, the Al Fish, um, all those, uh, electro records from the eighties, you know, and, um, throughout, you know, through all the early eighties and everything. And then, um, and as we, uh, developed chill deal we wanted to do this sort of, sort of party sound and we sort of coined our sound during the chill deal stuff you know with songs like single and make your body move um and i got into really punk um i got i sort of mastered the art of crowd vocals getting a bunch of you know maybe about five or six people in the room you know around a unit um, omnidirectional mic and um just having them like, and Jay would give them a chant, and you know they just repeat that like several times. I run the tape back, slow it down a little bit, record it again, speed it up a little bit, record it again. Then I'd mix them all together, you know, compress it, and try to you know just get this really huge sound. And and so we sort of uh, ran with that. Now, it and at some point, um, the Childo thing wasn't moving as fast as we would have liked. It wasn't going in the right direction. And like I said, I met Magic Mike and I saw the light, I think, when I saw the kind of the records he was selling and how you know how simple it was that he was doing. He just sped it up, you know, and had a lot more bass to it. So we decided we were going to get into the bass game. And we were still under contract with somebody else. This is where it starts getting tricky um, under the chill deal. So we had to sort of, rather than just going through the proper channels of getting away from that situation, we sort of reinvented ourselves as 95 South. So it's still us, the same guys who are doing the Children Boys, but now we're calling ourselves 95 South. And this is where we char- we changed our names too. So I was CC during Childill. But at this point, you know, we needed some kind of fake name. So they used to mess with my, you know, the size of my head a lot. I said, you know what, I'm Lemonhead. You know, and Jay uh, became Booty Man, and I think Mike became Rottweiler. Um, and we just came up with these fictitious names because we were kind of like trying to just do something brand, like we were brand new. And we, um, we, 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 um, we were down and out, you know, we moved to Atlanta. We had a little small apartment with nothing but records all over the place. And we was like, let's, uh, let's just do a bass album, man. We ain't got nothing else to do. So we took like seven, eight days, um, just went through record after record, you know, these old electro records, record, beach records, sample them, 
uh, put a bass drop in there and then throw some kind of hook line over it. You know what I mean? So we just we did that after eight days. We had a 95 style album. It wasn't a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, if you listen to it, it sounds really cruddy. But I mean, we were working with like, I think the first Alesis ADAT wow. system, you know, that just came out, man. I mean, we didn't have tape. We didn't have, we had these, these, these little ADATs um, and this little crappy mixing board, but we made it work, you know? Um, and then uh, with Jay's contacts from Chilldale, we got a deal with Ichabon to put out, to, not, to get some money and work the 95 South album. And the whole idea was just to go around and pass out tapes to you know the guys in the trucks and the, with the boom and everything, just sort of get it going like that. We were never really looking for a hit. We were just looking for an album to sell and get us, you know, and and, and you know and uh you know get something going. Um, but long story short, that uh the the phrase one of the songs on there was "Whoop There It Is," um, but that was an album cut. We we sort of just threw it on there because Jay heard that in the club. Everybody was just saying that in the club. There was no song, <laughs> so it's one of our chants on the '95 South album. But lo and behold, uh, we hear on the radio, um, the A-Town Players did a song called uh, The A-Town Drop. Come on in, whoop, there it is. And we're like, oh, no, they're going to they're gonna beat us to the punch. So, I mean, we switched, shifted gears last minute. I uh, got some money from Ichabon, went into a real studio, and we took whoop, there it is, and I just dumped everything I had into it, man. And Jay jumped in there. And now, all of a sudden, um, we had uh, a nice piece of work there with the remix. Only problem was Jay jumped out of the uh, out of the shadows all of a sudden. See, he was supposed to be low profile we're not supposed to be doing this kind of thing but he jumps right back in there with where that booty is and so of course you know our people knew who it was right away but it was too late because i mean we took that regular 102 jams and they added it the first day i think it was on the charts maybe two weeks later 20 stations had picked it up and all of a sudden we were on overnight success there it is um and that started uh, the whole Quad City uh, uh, experience, I right. guess you would say, because that led to basically uh, this and that, and uh, the, the with the with the um, answer to Woot, there it is, Woot, here it is, um, led to the 69 Boys Project, the K-Knock, um, a lot of movies, Space Jam, uh, and even um, and the Quad City DJ. So, in essentially. It's from 95 South, 69 Boys, to the Quad City DJs. It's still me and Jay. Yeah. Just sort of changing, shifting gears, adding a person here, dropping a person there kind of thing. Sure. So I, I do want to loop back and just pick up one name for, our, for the audience. You twice mentioned Magic Mike. Uh, what's the significance of Magic Mike? Who was he, for those who don't know? Magic Mike. Uh, oh, man, Magic Mike dropped the bass. Um, uh, Magic Mike was... Uh, a bass artist out of Orlando. He um, he uh, worked with Clay D and uh, a, a lot of other um, groups from, you know, between Florida and Miami. Um, but he was mostly known for instrumental bass albums. And these were the, like, uh, the load, 
down in Florida in the in the eighties and the nineties, you know, you had you know guys with the uh, Suzuki trucks or the you know the trucks with the with the boom in the back. You know what I mean? And the thing was, you know, just to have that bass pumping. I mean, so you could hear it like three blocks down the street, the police pulling you over and everything, that kind of stuff. So he sort of um, epitomized that form of music, at least in Central Florida. Um, Two Live Crew was doing their version of it. You know, you had the Poison Clan, you had Black Tag in Tampa. Uh, Magic Mike was probably Orlando's version of bass music while we were still in Orlando doing the chill deal, which was more of a party, but it's more slowed down and no bass. Um, when I met Magic Mike and hung out with him a little while, I mean, I was just amazed that I mean, this guy's got like, you know, uh, $500,000 cars sitting out in the driveway, you know what I mean? And uh, he had like one of the first cell phones I've seen, you know, the bricks, I mean, and the guy was just living large. And I'm like, you know, we're struggling here, you know, uh, with this uh, party music that, you know, the album, our album style hip hop ain't nothing but a party, so let's get it on. I mean, we were we were meeting people, but we weren't selling the records we want to. And this guy's here selling like half a million records every three months. So I just saw the light at that point. And that, that was probably a pivotal point in my career where I decided that I wanted to do basically what Magic Mike was doing it, but I wanted to do it on a scale that Dr. Dre was doing for gangster music. Oh. That was essentially what I said. I wanted to take bass music to the world the same way that uh, Dre took gangster music to the world, yeah. which was basically going on around at the same time. And we never stopped from that. So, I mean, I immediately stopped working on the Childo stuff and just started doing um, fast, up-tempo, uh, bass-driven beats. Um, and then when I reunited with Jay, who was already in Atlanta this time, and already had network with um, Ichabon Records, uh, we it, it was just a natural that we said, well, the next thing we need to put out is a bass album. And that's what was the first 95 South. Right. So... You said that the uh, that when Jay jumped on that track, uh, jumped on Woot, there it is, and that it became clear that yeah, you know, y'all were still under, it was you were still under contract. That, this was still deal reinvented. Yeah. So what what did <laughs> yeah. whoever had the contract with Chill with uh, Chill Deal think? How did they respond? They responded how you would expect any uh, <laughs> old school Jewish mogul record mogul from back in the who comes back into from the uh from that 70s man um you know he he's the one he 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 more or less gave us our start you know he gave us our first studio to work in and we we were legitimately under contract with him so he found out and he basically started you know legal um actions against us which is long story short one of the reasons why we never really made a dime off of whoop, there it is, because Ichabon ended up holding all the money until we could sort out uh, who owns the rights to our music because of that whole thing. And that, that went on, that went on through 93 through 94 with the whole 69 Boys album, which we ended up doing something completely different on that end so that we could get paid. Um, but the legal thing battle continued through that the 95 all the way up until the point where we were, um, we were parlaying with Atlantic records, Atlantic records really wanted to, uh, give us a production deal, but they wouldn't do it unless we cleared that thing up with that guy. So we ultimately did, uh, come up with an agreement and then ink the, uh, 
the um the quantity the the uh the Atlantic deal. Okay. So which led to the train, um, the space jam thing. And uh that's when and we then but then a lot of problems came up then and Jay and I began to fall out around that time. And to top it all off, the agreement that we made was never honored. So and this was something I don't know how this happened, but it's and I don't want to point a lot of fingers at everything, but Jay handled the business. I was in the studio. He was supposed to make sure that that deal went through and it never did. So the guy goes to court and gets a, a, a essentially a judgment against me and Jay, CJ Productions, for something near a million dollars. And that basically put the kibosh on most of the stuff we were doing around that time. Um, I mean, there's some other there's some other factors there, but that's 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 going to be part of the uh, story that I'm working on now. Right. I mean, there's a lot of intricate details that I'm leaving out here, but that's essentially the gist of it. Sure. So, at the point when you are, you're not the only people I've talked to who've had this kind of story, but it sounds like at the point when you're, you know, you're breaking and you're having you're having hits, you're also not seeing any money. Is that right? Not I wouldn't much. say I wasn't seeing any money. Um, so we, yeah, we maybe about we were seeing some money. We we had a good run with the with the uh, sixty nine boys project because we had a very a very close knit inside deal with the record company Ripper Records at that time, which was an independent label that was right down the street from us. It was created pretty much for us. The butterfly, uh-uh, that's all, let me see the tubes and rolls. Yeah, 1994, 69 boys backed up by the quartet of DJs. One time, cotton candy, sweetie, go, let me see the tubes and rolls. Come on, come on, just make that tubes and rolls. Here we go, here we go, just make that tubes and rolls. Yeah, come on, let me see that tubes and when Tootsie went number one on the rap charts, which no uh, Florida record had ever done at that point, um, we were we were making a lot of money. Um, we were we were because we were getting uh, I like to say maybe sixty percent of the record sales wow. off that project. Yeah, I mean we were getting checks for maybe uh, maybe uh, four or five hundred thousand dollars a month um, at one point. What and actually, I kind of regret it because what stopped that was my. I think it was more me, but we all decided to do it. More me. I, my dream was to ink a big major label deal, and Atlantic swooned us, and so we killed off the Rip It deal to go to do Quad Cities with Atlantic Records, and then that sort of. Uh, woke up a sleeping giant because we had to do the, thing, the legal side parts right, and then I think you know, and Jay, I, I don't think was was uh, his heart wasn't completely in it because I think that's what led to him not completing the agreement uh, with with the people that were suing us, and that was sort of the beginning, like I said, of the end. That was sort of the what started the big conflict with me and Jay and the record companies and everything. And then everything just really kind of crumbled after that. Um, if we would have stayed like we were in 94 and just kept doing it ourselves, I think we'd have been a lot better off. You know what I mean? Because my whole thing was about creative control. And when we, when we did the thing with Atlantic, 
I started to also get the feeling that they were going to try to micromanage what we were doing. And I was not for that at all, especially at that time. I was very thin skinned and I was very quick tempered. And I could have probably handled a lot of those situations a lot better now in hindsight. But back then, man, I, you know, I was 21 years old. I didn't know anything. And we were in Florida at that. So there's no real, not like in New York or in L.A. where you have, you're surrounded with people who've been in the business. We didn't have any guidance like that. We were just, you know, running off, you know, a wing and a prayer. And I mean, it's a phenomenal what we did in the middle of Orlando you know, with really no help from anybody. Yeah. But it did, you know, it didn't turn out the way I probably would have preferred to. Sure. Yeah. This is one of the things I think is really interesting about your story and, and to some extent about Miami, I mean, about Florida in the 90s, is that it what it seemed like to a great degree sort of from Miami to maybe to, to Atlanta was kind of its own little musical ecosystem. And there was a lot of like really of really important hip hop happening there, but it was so different from what was happening in New York or different from what was exactly. happening in LA exactly. that it, it didn't, yeah. I, I, I didn't even think about uh, until I was preparing for this, that you're running at basically the exact same time as, as death row, but because exactly. death row was Dre and it was, it was overshadowed right. and, you know, and it was a cultural, and it was a, you know, they insinuated themselves into the culture in a way where you were like this cool party thing happening over there. And they feel like Correct. two different worlds. Now, it's interesting that you said that because uh, the deal we made with Atlantic was with the guy, I can't forget, I can't remember his name right now, but he's the one who sort of got moved away from Atlantic because of the death row thing. When that whole thing went down and the shareholders wanted to get rid of the death row, um, forget his name. If you, you, you can look him up and remember his name. He was the one who dealt with Suge Knight and dealt with uh, Dre for death row. He got canned and Craig Coleman, who was, who was now still over the black department at Atlantic records stepped in. So we made a deal with the guy right before Craig, but we ended up dealing with Craig. They told us that they wanted a new, they needed a new, um, they needed a new, uh, a new death row that wasn't gangster. They wanted us to replace what they were getting rid of, but they, they said, we like you guys, you all guys are on the East coast too. Um, but you're a more party vibe. And this is, I think this is what Atlantic needs right now. So it's sort of a, it was sort of a direct transition from death row to us, the way Atlantic made it sound. And I was pretty impressed with that. I mean, so our deal that year was uh, the biggest deal they made that year. The second one was Junior Mafia. Wow. Same year. Right. So that's, that, was the, um, that was the hope that they had for us. That, right. uh, you know, they wanted to um, basically uh, to sort of follow in footsteps of what Dre and Suge had did with death row. So... I was really impressed by that because that was my goal for years before was to take our sound and, and take it to the world. And I mean, and it started off great. Cause I mean, I mean, maybe a month after um, we inked the deal, we had like the number five song on, um, on um, MTV with uh, the train. I mean, it just, it just blew up like instantly. Right. Um, 
So it, it, but then the problem started right after that. I mean, that moved so fast. It, it was like a blur. Um, and then we started having problems with the album for, uh, for the uh, Quad City DJs project. Right. Which is a whole story. <laughs> Who's the vocalist on on the train? Lana. Okay. Lana. I forget her last name. Sorry, Lana. (laughs) So, Um, how did she come into the picture? Man, this is another like all of these are like mini movies within (laughs) themselves. Um, you want to know the truth? Uh, The uh, we had another girl named Sprint Esperanza. She was. That was my, you know, she was my heart. Um, she did all my singing for, um, for when we were working on the '69 album. If we needed a vocalist, she would do it. Um, and she, and I loved her voice and everything. And she was actually the beginning. She was the foundation of the Quad City DJs back in '94 before we actually put them together. Um, Jay wanted to do a Quad City DJs, and I said, yeah, and we should have a singer. There's got to be a singer. This should be more, not just, you know, rapping and, and chants, but I want more musical elements and I want singing and this, that, and the other. And Spran was my girl. What happened with Spran is somebody got to us, somebody within our camp, right around the time we were inking the the, uh, the deal for for um, Atlantic and right about to do the train, um, she disappeared on me. Um, I, so when somebody got got with her and convinced her they had her uh, a record contract or something with somebody else. So she just disappeared on me and I couldn't find her to do the train. It was, I was freaking out. Um, right before the day before I think I had did some crowd vocals, some of the girl crowd vocals with K-Nock and uh, K-Nock brought some uh, girls over. So they could just do some, uh, go ahead, go ahead, some chants and stuff like that. Um, before they left, Lana just like, you know, if you need a singer, think Lana. Right. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Get out of my house. <laughs> but uh, the next day, when I couldn't or the couple of days later, when I needed, we had to get this song going because it was a very it was a rush on the train. Um, I couldn't find Spran. She dipped on me. So I pulled Lana in last minute. I mean, I just called her hey, because she was the only one there who even claimed she could sing. I had never even worked with this girl on a singing tip. And I mean, she was not a professional singer. I will say that. But, you know. I am a bad motherfucker on Pro Tools, and I made it work. I made it work. I made it work, and I mean, and she developed over time. You know, it got better, but she ended up being the uh, the the girl in Quasi DJs just because of that. Just because Fran just disappeared on me, and Lana was in the right place at the right time. So, for really no other reason than that. And I mean, God bless Lana. I love her to death. She, you know, she, 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 she did the best she could, and she, she handled it. You know what I mean? Yeah. She handled it um, very well. So, to get to the Christmas album, it's nineteen uh, ninety six, and I think it was ninety four. Hmm, let me check. Okay, we'll check. I will. I'll check that. 
Um, okay, okay, that's fine. But yeah, I rem- the, reason, the reason I say it's not as I remember doing a Christmas album before before we got the Atlantic deal. When we got Atlantic deal '95 and the train came out '96, but we had I thought we had done the Christmas song. We might have did the album in '96 and had already had the Christmas song. The Christmas song though we did, I rem- um, I just remember it was '94, uh, right before Christmas. I didn't want to do it. Oh, really? Why? I thought it would be corny. I mean, I didn't really particularly like modern Christmas songs. You know what I mean? Sure. I always, I, I always had that. I was always under the had the attitude that uh, Christmas was becoming too commercialized. So you know, with the TV ads, the commercials, you know, just and Christmas songs just played into that. Like you know, I. The ones from the fifties and sixties, yeah, because you grew up with it. But, um, but then, I don't know. I, you know, listen to the the Run DMC. I, I did like the Run DMC uh, Christmas. So I thought, okay, they did it their way. And as I figured, and, and it was really important to Jay and Rip It Records to do. Um, and uh, Christmas was coming around the corner, and I think even One Hundred Two Jams requested that we do one. I, but I was just probably the last one that had to be sold on the idea. But then I think eventually it just hit me that, you know, if we do it, we got to do it. Can't We can't be trying to sound uh, like other Christmas songs, you know. And so, I mean, when I decided that we were going to do it, I figured, you know, what's the, what's going to be the formula for that? What, I mean, a Christmas song, Quad City, well, of course, it's going to be bass. And obviously there's going to be some jingle bells. And I think that was really what kicked it off. It's just, let me get some bass and some jingle bells. And I remember I was still skeptical skeptical while we were doing it because, and you know, I come from, I don't come from a very religious background, but I do come from a respect to God background. Um, I, I, I think you can do some things that might be, might be thought as disrespectful. Um, and we're talking about the birth of Christ. And so I, so I said, I'll do it, but I have one condition. And I said, if we're going to get K-Knock on this, I want her to say, stop the beat for a sec so we can show some respect. And then go right back into what we were going to do. You know what I'm saying? I said, hey, fine, let's do it. So they put that part in the verse. And after that, I figured, okay, well, at least I did that much. Now we can just go crazy like we do in Florida and just, you know, get crazy with the with the with the bass and the snares and the crowd. And, you know, they're gonna be so shallow with what they're asking for for Christmas. But that's what made it fun and that's really at the end of the day how we feel about Christmas in Florida. I mean, just like uh Run DMC and Hollis Queens, Mom's cooking chicken and collard greens. I mean, this is this is what we do and this is how we do it in Florida. You know, if you want uh five diamond rings and or five months free rent, <laughs> you know, I mean, so, and, and the, now, and every year that I hear it, I did not know it would become such a classic. I thought this was something they played this year and then we'd never hear it again, but it's steadily grown in popularity. It seems like every year and every time I hear it now, I'm actually quite proud of it. I think we, uh, we were having fun. And um, we sort of captured the essence of what we're about down here. And I think, um, and people love it. Hey, player, what you gonna get, huh, for Christmas? Yeah. Girl, what you gonna get that for? Come on, come on, come on. What you gonna get, huh, for Christmas? Yeah. Girl, what you gonna get that for? Right at that. 
Had you heard Outcast Players Ball at that time? Yeah, I was familiar with. Uh, they were just coming out around that time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I've I've been sort of paying attention to this stuff recently, and that there's just sort of these like you like uh, that. I think was '93. Yours is '94. Uh, Death Row has a Christmas album in '96, and so there was just suddenly there's like you know kind of these important hip hop records, hip hop Christmas records. To the extent, to the extent, okay. any, to the extent, any Christmas records are really important, but you know, so put that aside. But anyway, but I'm always curious as like you know, who heard who? What you know? And obviously, you were ahead of Death Row, but I was, but I was wondering if you'd if you'd heard Outkast Players Ball at that time too. I don't think I heard their Christmas album when when we did our Christmas song, and I'll tell you why because that was one reason why I was so skeptical about it. The only one I think I'd heard was the Run DMC's christmas at that time and i think you know that had been out for a couple of years at least at that point and i and, and i always felt like you know run dmc you know they're legends so that's fine that i didn't think we counted i thought that we'd be um I, I don't know that we'd be uh sort of looked down upon for doing a you know christmas album because just because of our style you know i thought that they might find it disrespectful so that was so if i would have heard it seems to me that maybe um, we uh, sort of made it okay for the for the Dirty South to you know get in on the whole Christmas uh, on the Christmas thing. Sure. And because Outcast did theirs, and then um, uh, yeah, and then um, who did you say? Death Row did theirs. Death Row, right? Yeah. So um, no, yeah, I hadn't heard any of them except for the Run DMC. Okay. So where did the idea for the album come from? Because this for that Christmas album, you really do have, you know, a real rotating cast of, uh, of vocalists, of uh, vocal groups that uh, it really does. It it feels very much like I mean, to listen to it. It feels very much like 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 a hit, like a Christmas party, and that you've got. I mean, it's a bunch of skits, but you've got you know. Women are the lead vocals on this track, and here's sixty nine. Uh, here's uh, you know sixty nine boys on this track, and here's other people on this one, and it feels like K Knox on it, and you've got all these different groups. Right. Well, and- we were just trying to showcase the the whole family, the, you know, the Quad City family, because we had big plans for for all for all our groups, including this and that, including Twenty Four K, which was a part of the K Knox solo. Um, right, and of course, '69 Boys um, and Fast and Slow the Dancers. We were, I think, and uh, and '95 South. We, um, I mean, we were all really just a big, a big clique. And around that time, we did that. I mean, we we had we were renting out this little house in Pine Hill, maybe a three bedroom, and it's probably like 20 of us in there. You know, I had one. The master bedroom was a studio. Um, you know, Van and then 95 South, everybody's in the living room, uh, you know, playing, uh, uh, Sega hockey all day. You know what I mean? Um, they're writing in the, in the dining room, everybody's going in and out, you know, laying down vocals, you know, or doing crowd vocals and stuff. I mean, it was just full time 24 seven. So I think we, we wanted to, and that's what we were trying to do the quad city family. That's, that was really Jay's, uh, baby. Jay, Jay wanted, uh, to, I guess, consolidate everybody into the just one big family oriented vibe and that was 
sort of the secret behind that. Hello? I would like to speak to Bonquisha. Otis? Yes, this is Otis. Well, tell her she is going to hear me one way or the other. Either she steps outside or either she's going to hear me through the door. You know, Bonquisha, ever since you and I stopped seeing each other, I ain't been doing nothing but thinking, thinking, thinking. I ain't been able to sleep. I ain't been able to do nothing that required you being in it. Baby, I know that we've had rough times before, but we got through it. Like the time all the power went off in the house, and we had to finish cooking the collard greens on the happy heater, but we did it together. All the time that the froster didn't work on the microwave and the turkey was still frozen, remember we had to get chicken down from Larry's Long Neck Legwater Late Night Chicken House. Remember? I'm going to wrap up with a short passage from Bill Adler's investigation into the story of Christmas blues, otherwise known as Bonquisha and Otis. I'll put a link to the story in the show notes, but in it, he explains that the voice of Otis was Ricardo Spencer, also known as Rico. He was the younger brother of members of 95 South, and as CC said, they brought lots of people in to record. Rico's claim to fame in the 95 South Quad City Circle was that he was funny and good at doing voices. On the record, Adler writes, he assumes the identity of a wino named Otis. I always had a picture in my mind of an old black guy in a Santa Claus suit with a bottle of wine hanging out of his pocket, walking down the street on Christmas. And for some reason, I always constitute winos with the name Otis, says Rico. For Bonquisha, we have one of Rico's ex-girlfriends to thank. Bonquisha is a ghetto queen, says Rico. If a girl comes over to visit and she's got Cheeto dust all over her freshly painted fingernails, it's because she was eating Cheetos while driving. She ain't necessarily bad, but you know she's ghetto. My girl would say she acting like Bonquisha. You can find more of Adler's story at LLCoolJ'sRockTheBells.com and hope to hear from Jay Ski and Rico at some point in the future. Thanks to CC and Alexandra for the time and the talk. You can find Quad City DJs on Facebook, and you can hear Alexandra's music at her Bandcamp page. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. If you haven't done so yet, please follow, subscribe, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your weekly podcast feed. That way, you don't miss anything, and the algorithms make it easier for others to find out about 12 songs. If you want a free download of this year's listeners-only 12 Songs Christmas Mix, write me at alex at myspiltmilk.com, and I'll hook you up. We'll wrap up today with one more from Quad City DJ's All-Star Christmas. This is their approximation of a chopped and screwed Christmas track, Lil' Bass Boy, featuring B-Fast and G-Slow. Talk to you next week. Yo, it's B-Fast and G-Slow, slowing it down for all my dolls in the old.